This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. They are costing taxpayers billions of dollars, and the values that they're claiming are completely nuts, to be honest. You know, these people are buying into these syndications for $8 million, for example, and, you know, a month later, they're claiming deductions for $45 million for the same property that they bought into for $8 million. It's conceivable that somebody discovered a gold mine on the property after they paid $8 million for it, but I doubt seriously that's the case in any of these. So it's a huge scam on the taxpayer. Attorney Tim Lindstrom is talking about syndicated conservation easements, a tax break the IRS hates and is cracking down on. For example, you can imagine that for 1,500 wealthy people, the land deals may have seemed like a sure thing. For every $1 they invested in partnerships that promised to preserve green space, they got $4 or more in charitable deductions to cut their tax bills. But prosecutors say those deals cheated the government out of $250 million by inflating valuations. Lindstrom has prepared hundreds of conservation easements for individual taxpayers, but he steers clients away from the syndicated deals. I guess the first time I got called was a few years ago, and it was an investment broker, and he wanted to know what I thought. And he provided me with a documentation which violated a confidentiality agreement he had made with the people who were promoting this. But I looked at it, and I wrote him a 12-page letter that basically said, don't do this. This is too good to be true. People are relying on values that have no credibility. And if they're audited, they're going to not only have to cough up what they saved in taxes, but penalty and interest. So since then, I've had three or four other people call as recently as in the past six months. And they said, well, I've read about these syndications and um, I've got a, a big tax liability this year. And I understand you know about syndications and I'd like you to help me. And I said, well, I'll help you by telling you don't do it. If you are audited, you are going to be very unhappy. And I can't give you advice based on the likelihood that you'll be audited. You just have to assume that the IRS is going to look at this. And if they do, you're going to lose a lot of money. Does it seem like the investors know what they're getting into? Well, it's hard to know what the investors know. I think a lot of them, you know, they want to make a buck. And here's a, an investment advisor telling you, hey, you know, put up 100000 and you'll save $200,000 in income taxes. And they don't know any more about it than that. They get these PPMs, these uh, private placement memos that are 30 or 40 pages long, and they're not reading those things. All they're doing is saying, this is a good deal. How can I possibly resist this? The people who should take the blame aren't the investors. It's the promoters. They absolutely know what they're doing. Joining me now is Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis, who's been looking into the IRS crackdown. So, David, explain what a syndicated conservation easement is. Syndicated conservation easements are an investment vehicle that are supposed to encourage land conservation. And they're encouraged in the tax code by a law that Congress passed 40 years ago, and they've been refining the regulations ever since. But essentially, they're pools of investors that get together and buy interests in partnerships, typically, that then buy land and give easements on undeveloped land to land trusts or government agencies. And this is a way to 
encourage land conservation. There's tens of millions of acres around the country that have been saved through conservation easements. Now, the vast majority of conservation easements are done by individuals or families. The variation that we're talking about is syndicated conservation easements in which investors get together and they get special treatment under the law that they can then take the charitable deduction on their tax form and they can write that off on their taxes. Tell us about the IRS crackdown on these deals. What the IRS has been investigating is abuses in the syndicated conservation easement industry in which the IRS has concluded that many of the syndicates are essentially tax shelters in which they are offering tax breaks without any substance behind them. And what the IRS is now doing and has been doing for about three years, and they're really quickening the pace now, is they're conducting civil audits of promoters of the syndicated conservation easements, and they're also conducting criminal investigations. And there are now grand juries in Atlanta, St. Louis, and Charlotte weighing charges against organizers around the United States. The IRS says the appraisals of the property are grossly inflated. Explain that core issue. The heart of the dispute between investors and the IRS is the way that the land is valued. Essentially, what the government is saying is that the promoters of these syndicated conservation easements are offering land that's overvalued, and that is what's cheating the IRS. The deduction that taxpayers get is the difference between the value of the land if it's left undeveloped and placed in an easement that bars development and the value of the land if it were developed to its highest and best use. So a parcel may be worth $10 million if it's undeveloped and $60 million if it's developed to its highest and best use. The difference, $50 million, is the charitable deduction that investors can take. Tell us about these two brothers from an Atlanta accounting firm who pleaded guilty. There were two brothers, Corey and Stein Agee. They're 42 and 38, and they work for an accounting firm. And they were part of an organization that we reported was run by a promoter and accountant named Jack Fisher. And they would organize groups of wealthy investors to put money into these syndicates that would donate conservation easements to land trusts. And the IRS position is that the appraisals that are on properties that are given away through these conservation easements are grossly inflated. And that's where the fraud starts. The AGs both pleaded guilty in late December in Asheville, North Carolina, and they're cooperating with prosecutors in Charlotte that have a larger investigation going. The AGs helped this organization sign up clients, and they helped with the taxes that were owed by the clients. And they are now cooperating and against as we reported, uh, promoter A, he's referred to in court documents, and we identified him as Jack Fisher, who's an accountant and developer who's done 
a couple dozen of these deals across the United States. And when the IRS is investigating these deals, what are they looking for? They are looking for what they call badges of fraud, where there's written materials or promises made that are false or omissions that should be in the written materials. Essentially, what they argue in the criminal case involving the AG brothers in Asheville is that the game was rigged when investors put their money into a syndicate. The syndicate was supposed to offer them three options. One is to develop the land. The other was to leave it as it is. And the third is to donate an easement on the land. And they're supposed to lay out the economic benefit of each option, and they are essentially steering everyone into the conservation easement option. And what the investigators believe is that the appraisal of the land that calculates what it would be worth if it were developed, that those appraisals are inflated. So they're looking at promises made about what the appraisals will be before the appraisals are made. They're looking at whether the appraisers intentionally inflated their reports. They're looking at whether the lawyers and the accountants aided this. And in the case of the AG brothers, the AGs admitted that they backdated documents so that investors, say, in the 2017 tax year, may have signed checks and signed documents in 2018 to make it appear that they had done all this in the 2017 tax year. And that's generally seen as a clear indication of fraud when there's backdated documents. The Senate Finance Committee report estimates these deals cost the government $10.6 billion in unpaid taxes between 2010 and 2017, and that the deals have attracted wealthy doctors, lawyers, business owners, and celebrities. Do the investors know what they're getting into? That's an excellent question. I think that's something that the investigators are trying to figure out, whether they believed that they were investing in a legitimate opportunity to save on taxes, or whether they knew that the deal was rigged. And Essentially, what the IRS is doing is first looking at the promoters and the organizers, and then they will presumably go and audit the taxes of the investors after that. So the IRS is first trying to determine whether the tax benefits they received are legitimate or not. And if they're not, you know, that could lead to probably in most cases forcing investors to pay back taxes and penalties. In your story, you write that the Justice Department has filed suit in Georgia to stop six organizers. Why are they filing suit to stop them? I'm trying to understand like, why they're just not going after them criminally. Well, there's a difference in the law um, whether someone is criminally responsible. They have to uh, know that they have a certain legal obligation and they are willfully violating that. So that willful, willfulness standard um, is uh, the difference between a criminal case and a civil case. So in the case of these um, promoters that they've sued in Georgia, essentially to get them to stop doing it, um, th- they believe um, that these are fraudulent conservation easement shelters which are based on willfully false valuations, but 
you know, it's sort of a fine um, evidentiary and uh, legal difference of whether that should be a criminal case or a civil case. And in that case, they have made the judgment that they're going to proceed civilly. That is a going to be a long, hard slog of a litigation. There are many millions of pages of documents involved, and there are quite a number of of, uh, deals that have to be gone through. And some investors have filed three class action lawsuits. What are they suing over? Well, the investors claim that essentially they were duped by these promoters and that the promoters were so organized that they amounted to a racketeering enterprise. And they have sort of systematically taken apart these deals and framed them in legal complaints that say that essentially the promoters took advantage of investors. They will need to show in those instances that the investors didn't know that these deals were fraudulent. And they have a law firm that has filed three of these. They have a successful record of securities litigation going back many years. There are other law firms out there soliciting investors to file their own litigation. Are the investors suing because the IRS is looking into them and they're trying to protect themselves? As I understand it, the litigation is based on the theory that these people are looking at potential back taxes and penalties that they would not have been facing had they not been steered wrong by a group of professionals working in concert. A land conservation easement that's gotten a lot of publicity is that of former President Donald Trump in New York. And both the Manhattan District Attorney and the New York Attorney General are investigating it. But that's a different situation from what we've been talking about. Correct. In the Trump case, um, Letitia James, who's the New York Attorney General, and Cy Vance, the Manhattan District Attorney, are both looking at a conservation easement that the Trump Organization gave in 2015 at Trump's Seven Springs Estate, which is north of New York City. He gave 158 acres, or he donated uh, it through an easement to a land trust organization and generated a $21 million tax break. Officials are looking at whether the appraisals that underpin that assessment of the value of the easement, whether those appraisals were inflated. In that instance, They're just looking at Trump and the Trump organization. There's not a syndicate of investors like the IRS is examining around the country. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, David. That's David Voriakis, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. The Supreme Court will hear arguments later this month over the scope of police power against the backdrop of the trial of the former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd, a death that touched off national protests and calls for racial justice. On March 24th in Coniglia v. Strom, the justices will review limits on warrantless home searches and seizures. Joining me is Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Reporter. Jordan, tell us about the facts in this case before the court. So this case stems from what an appeals court called marital discord at the Caniglia home in Rhode Island. There was an incident where there was an argument between a husband and wife. The husband threw a gun on the table, said something along the lines of, 
put me out of my misery. He left the home, came back. She left the home, stayed in a motel for the night. The next morning, she was having trouble getting in touch with him. And so she reached out to the police who wound up going to the home and checking on the husband. And they wound up convincing him to go to a hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. And they took guns that he had in the home and they wound up giving them back. But what happened is the husband wound up suing the police and government officials for this warrantless search and seizure. The police entered the home at the invitation of the wife and they didn't break down a door or anything. Right. So the entry was justified according to the appeals court who wound up siding with the government here under what's called the community caretaking doctrine under the Fourth Amendment. Generally, we know that to enter a home under the Fourth Amendment, police need a warrant or some exception to the warrant requirement. And this caretaking doctrine in the past had applied in the automobile context to allow warrantless searches there, not for criminal investigation reasons, but for what are called community caretaking reasons. And so in this case, what we have is the extension of that doctrine from the automobile context into the home context for situations like a potential suicide or some situation like that. And the question now at the Supreme Court is whether that doctrine does in fact extend into the home. Has this come up before other lower courts besides the ones that decided this case? So as often happens in cases that wind up going to the Supreme Court, there is a split. Courts disagree about whether this doctrine should apply. There's some confusion just generally about this community caretaking doctrine because there are other Fourth Amendment exceptions, things that will allow police to act without warrants, something that's called exigency, emergency aid. And so there's a lot of differences of opinion in the courts and different lawyers have brought up different arguments. And so the Supreme Court in this case can sort out not only just whether this doctrine extends to the home, but just to kind of clarify what exactly this doctrine is or isn't and how it interacts with the rest of the Fourth Amendment law that we have. So what Mr. Coniglia is really complaining about is that his guns were taken? That's part of it, yes. He wound up launching a civil suit with multiple claims, including Second and Fourth Amendment violations. But really, the case itself at the Supreme Court has centered on the Fourth Amendment issue. There's a couple of aspects to that. One is the warrantless entry to the home, the seizure of guns, the seizure of him, too, in going to the hospital. So it's possible that different justices might focus on different aspects of that. But even within the warrantless Fourth Amendment context, there are different aspects to it. So there are multiple layers to it, but generally we're looking at warrantless police action into the home based on this community caretaking doctrine. How does the community caretaking doctrine work with cars? So the case that the police and the appeals court that sided with them relied on is this case from the 1970s called Katie against Dombrowski, where the warrantless search of a car after it was towed was allowed based not on being part of a criminal investigation because other parts of the Fourth Amendment would apply, but based on the fact that automobiles are mobile and that there are reasons to search it where police wouldn't need a warrant. Generally, there's this whole line of cases under the Fourth Amendment where automobiles are treated differently, not just in this community caretaking context. And so that's the backdrop for this. And you have 
Obviously, Coniglia is saying, no, this should be confined to the automobile context where you have the officers on the other side saying, no, it's this general principle of reasonableness that should also apply for police to be able to help people in situations like this, even though nothing bad wound up happening here. What groups are filing amicus briefs and taking a position in the case? So as often happens in these cases, you have criminal defense aligned groups that are siding with the claim going against the government here, including Second Amendment groups, too. There's this gun issue that's sort of lurking in the background of the case, and it'll be interesting to see how that interplays at the court as well, because obviously we have a court that is very sensitive to gun rights, and we'll see how that interacts with the Fourth Amendment rights here. And obviously, on the police side of it, as we'll see, we have government groups and states that are backing the government claim here because they don't want an incursion on their power and be able to act without warrants when they think it's needed. The justices already heard a Fourth Amendment case involving hot pursuit and whether the police can pursue a suspect into their home for a misdemeanor. So this is another case that broadly relates to this issue of what power police have to enter the home without a warrant. This case is Lang against California. The question is whether this hot pursuit doctrine, which is, as it sounds, allows police to pursue suspects, which the court has said is okay in the felony context to follow a suspect into a home. The question is whether officers can do that when they're following a alleged committer of a misdemeanor into the home, in this case involving uh, DUI. And so it's another case of how does Fourth Amendment law interact with the home and where do the justices draw the line on what police are allowed to do without warrants and when they need to be justified by warrants. The Supreme Court is looking at other cases in the future involving police and one involves the ability to sue police. So tell us about that. Sure. So this case comes from New York in the case of a Brooklyn man named Larry Thompson and he was arrested at home in 2014 by officers who were investigating possible child abuse. He was jailed for two days and charged with obstructing governmental administration and resisting arrest. The prosecution ultimately dismissed the case in the interest of justice, and then Thompson wound up suing the officers to vindicate his Fourth Amendment rights under what's called a malicious prosecution suit. Now, Under Supreme Court precedent, in order to be able to bring a claim like this, a plaintiff needs to show that the criminal case terminated in their favor. Now, the issue that the Supreme Court is taking up is what exactly that means, because some appeals courts have said that plaintiffs need to show that the criminal case ended in a manner not inconsistent with their innocence, and some have said that the case needs to end with affirmative indications of their innocence. So to explain that a little bit more by way of what happened in this case, in Thompson's case, when the prosecution dismissed the case saying that they're doing so in the interest of justice, they're not saying directly anything about Thompson's innocence one way or the other. That's different from, say, if there is an acquittal or if the conviction winds up getting overturned on appeal. And Thompson is saying, look, I should be able to bring this suit because it's really not consistent with how the criminal justice system works, that when a case is being dismissed in the ordinary course that the prosecution is saying 
something affirmatively indicating innocence and not having that in the record shouldn't bar someone from at least being able to pursue their civil claim. So the justices recently agreed to take up his case, and this will be one that will be argued next term, and the court will sort out which standard should apply. Do you know what what his claim of malicious prosecution was based on? Sure. And so as often happens in these civil suits, sort of like we were talking about in the context of the Coniglia case as well, when someone brings a civil claim, they want to sue for anything that they can. And this malicious prosecution claim was one of a number of claims that he brought, and some of them actually went to trial and Thompson lost at trial. But the bottom line is that all the claims really stem from the same action of the officer's arresting him and then bringing him to court where he wound up being charged. And it's really just a matter of lawyers looking at the situation and saying, what's every single possible claim that we can bring? And so there might be duplicate claims, essentially, that are called the same thing, but it's just a matter of what can you sue for? And so it's, it's a little bit, seems doesn't match in a way you're talking about prosecution, but it's against police officers. And that's, Another interesting almost side issue to it, but that's just what these claims are called that people use to try and vindicate their Fourth Amendment rights. Is it surprising that his appeal is being backed by a coalition of 57 prosecutors, ex-Justice Department officials, and former judges? It's definitely notable. What was interesting to me in reading their amicus brief is they're telling the court that using this affirmative indications of innocence standard It just is not consistent with how the criminal system works. When a prosecutor dismisses a case, it often doesn't have anything to do with the ultimate issue of guilt or innocence, or at least prosecutors aren't going to say that. There are a number of issues why they might not go forward in a case which doesn't deal with this heady issue of innocence. And so they say it's just not fair and it's just not right and doesn't make sense to require plaintiffs to have that showing in order to bring this type of claim. Thanks, Jordan. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every week, 9 at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio.